I mentioned last Sunday that today uh, we would be launching a sermon series uh, for January and February in the book of Revelation. And so I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. We read part of the text this morning of, Gen uh, of Revelation 1, and uh, we'll read uh, the, uh, much of the rest of Revelation 1 in the message this morning. But this is a series of serve, uh, messages that I've decided to title, uh, The Savior and His Churches. This is part one, and uh, we will go through chapter 2 and chapter 3 before we're through with this series, but I invite you to study with us. Uh, and before we do, uh, let's uh, bow to pray. Lord, we love you, and we're so thankful that you have reached out to us in Jesus Christ, that you have proclaimed uh, to us your love in this love letter that we hold in our hands, the Bible. Thank you for uh, sharing your heart with us, for telling us how to live in relationship with you. And I pray that you would teach us from your word this morning as we dig into difficult texts. I, I pray that you would inspire us and, and uh, cause us joy and delight. Uh, and uh, you, Lord, in this text, you've promised blessing to all those who read these words and who hear these words. We want all that blessing. So pour it out on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's your mental picture of Jesus? There are many you might choose from. There's the picture of the baby born in a manger. We've celebrated that in recent weeks. He was that. There's a picture of Jesus uh, teaching the crowds on a hillside above Galilee. He did that. There's Jesus welcoming and blessing the children even while the disciples were discouraging the little ones. He welcomed them. Sweet picture. Maybe your mind's eye sees Jesus touching the sick or delivering the demonized or speaking forgiveness over a woman caught in adultery. Those are real, inspiring, beautiful, heart-touching pictures of Jesus. There's the picture of the cross. Jesus dying for our sins. I am so grateful. That's a vivid picture in my mind's eye. And I also love to see Jesus marching forth victorious from the empty tomb, alive again. He carried my victory over sin with him. He carried the promise of eternal life for me with him. I love that picture. If you were the Apostle John... What would be your picture of Jesus? He had all of those and more. In fact, John was with Jesus in his earthly ministry so closely that he describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. He's the disciple who leaned against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He'd been there at Jesus' baptism and the dove descending and the voice from heaven. He was on the inside of the core three, Peter, James, and John. Jesus took him along when the others of the 12 didn't get to go along. He saw the resurrection of Jairus' daughter that the others didn't see. He was there among the three on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus glowed with glory and met with Moses and Elijah. He was there 
in Gethsemane as part of the three when Jesus agonized before the cross. So John has seen a lot of Jesus, but this experience of Jesus absolutely stunned him, knocked him out, blew him away. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His faith was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, and when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead." Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Again, this is John the Apostle. The same writer of the gospel, the only disciple who was at the cross. He's the one you remember that Jesus from the cross instructed him to take care of Mary, Jesus' mother. This is John who was the first to the tomb after the women disciples announced that Jesus has risen. Same guy. What is he doing on the island of Patmos? He was in a Roman prison colony a quarry where prisoners cut and broke stone. He's there in prison for preaching the gospel. It's the time of Nero, and the persecution is ramping up on Christians. John has been pastor at Ephesus and was probably the bishop, the overseeing pastor for the churches all around. Maybe each of the seven churches mentioned was under his charge. He's in prison for preaching the gospel, and it's the Lord's Day, Sunday. And while he's praying, he's caught up by the Holy Spirit into a vision, a vision from the Spirit of God. And he hears this voice as loud as a trumpet. Ever had a trumpet playing in the back of your head? Harriet, my wife, uh, in her days in college band, sat right in front of the trombone section. And she tells me it's loud. 
It can make your body vibrate. And it's shocking if you don't know it's coming. This loud, shocking voice said, write this down and send it to the churches, the seven churches. And when John turns around toward the overpowering voice, he sees seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands walks Jesus, one like the Son of Man. That was Jesus' favorite title for himself in his earthly ministry. This is Jesus, but not Jesus like he'd seen him before. It's Jesus, Jesus in all his majesty. John had seen him before transfigured, glowing with glory, but this was beyond anything he had seen. Stunning, breathtaking, astonishing. How is Jesus described? Wearing a royal robe and a golden sash. His hair dazzling white, his eyes ablaze, shining like flame, his feet glowing like they were red hot, white hot. As he spoke, the voice was like a torrent of water. Ever been to a waterfall? Ever been to Niagara? I tell you, it's all you can hear. His right hand held seven stars. That will be defined for us. The sharpest of swords comes from his mouth, symbolic, obviously, of the word he speaks. And his face glowed with a brilliance like the sun. An amazing picture of Jesus. John had seen Jesus in some amazing experiences during life, but nothing like this. Jesus in life was Emmanuel, the presence of God himself. Jesus, the great teacher. Jesus, the soul satisfier. Jesus, the great healer and miracle worker. Jesus, the sin forgiver. Jesus, the one who loved John so deeply. He is all these things, but he is so much more. And this vision... From God, the symbols here, the pictures declare that Jesus is master over space and time, the eternal one, God himself in all his majesty and power. John has seen Jesus in those amazing and tender but limited experiences across three years of ministry. He knows Jesus as friend, an amazing friend to be sure, a powerful, miraculous presence, obviously, but there is much, much more in his vision. He sees the rest of who Jesus really is, master of space and time. Eternal God, infinite in power, majestic in sovereign authority. None is his equal. He is Alpha, the beginning before the beginning. The Old Testament would call him the Ancient One. He is Omega. He'll be still standing in his glory after everything on earth is gone. The one who was and is and is to come, said verse 8. This is Jesus in his eternal majesty. And it's shocking to this apostle who knew him as friend. Incredible to the apostle who 
leaned his head on Jesus' chest. So awesome is this vision of John that he says, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. I fainted away. My heart stopped. I was so afraid seeing my Savior so. I was in astonishment and awe. It slayed me right there. Listen to me. Jesus is not only the sweet Savior of the church. Jesus is not just the loving, caring shepherd of the flock. Jesus is not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild as Charles Wesley's old great hymn has him. He is not just a tender, beautiful friend. He is eternal God. He is majestic Lord. He's the creator of creation, the one who spoke worlds into being. He is the ruler of all eternity and the one who has the right to be master, ruler, Lord, and boss of your life. And he is master, director, owner, leader of his church. And listen, my friend, whatever your experience of Jesus, he is far more. Some of us have encountered something similar to this. We thought we knew what Jesus was all about. We'd met him in the Bible stories. We'd met him in the church pictures. We, we knew about the historical person, Jesus. And we had a pretty full picture, or so we thought, and then we encountered him in a way that stunned our expectations. We met him in a personal and powerful way, and he became bigger and grander and more wonderful in our experience than we could ever describe. Said S.M. Lockridge, the great African-American preacher, he's indescribable, he's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind, you can't get him off your hand, you can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Someday I'll play that message for you. It's powerful. Listen, he's more. He's so much more. Always more. And it blew John off his feet, this new vision of Jesus, the Savior in his majesty. But John says, he touched me. He put his right hand on me. Right hand has symbolic meaning. Hand of favor. Hand of honor. He touched me and said, fear not, don't be afraid. And it's like Jesus lifted me up and said, I know this frightens you, but it's me. Don't panic. You need to see, I want you to see this fuller picture. I am the first and last. I am the forever living one. I'm the one who you saw was dead and the one who you saw rose from the dead. I'm eternal and in my hands are the keys of death and Hades. Now get this. What is Jesus doing? He's taking this disciple 
who has fainted away, shaking in fear at this frightening picture of all that Jesus is, the eternal God, and he's comforting him, touching him, encouraging him. And he's going to commission him and give him work to do. I'm always blessed when I get to spend time with my best friend and I've heard his testimony so many times as we traveled around Ukraine, he would get the chance to tell the story of his coming to faith in Christ, and I love it when he tells how he understands this journey and the process of God, God's work in his life. And sometimes I just enjoy his faith story so much, I just say, tell me your story again. He grew up Irish Catholic with a very intense fascination with God and the majestic experience of the mass was important to him and the Eucharist was a, in a genuine cathedral were so attractive to him. God was intriguing but distant. In his young adult life, he began to struggle with alcohol. And then during his treatment, he opened up to the Lord in a more personal way. He opened up to the Lord in a I need you kind of way. I need a personal work of God in my life kind of way. And then he encountered people who, who have a walking, talking, conversational, personal relationship with Jesus. And he was hooked. And he always wants to pray. Whenever we're together, he'll say, Steve, let's pray. Because he's discovered Jesus is more. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is always beyond what he thought he would be. Everything of life gets involved with Jesus. And he knows that Jesus is great while Jesus is so caring and concerned. The Apostle John has got to get comfortable seeing Jesus in this magnified, celestial, heavenly, ultimate, all-out, stupendous picture. He's got to get comfortable understanding Jesus is way beyond. He's got to get used to seeing Jesus as, as more than he'd imagined. And he's got to hear Jesus saying, stop being afraid of that. Because my desire is to show you who you're really serving. I've called you. And I want you. I've got these keys of death and Hades. Keys of death and hell. Does that scare you? The keys are not to lock people up. They're to set people free. I want to let people out not lock people in. That's Jesus' heart. And I've got a job for you, John. Write all this down. I've got important things to say to my churches, and we'll dig into each of those messages starting next Sunday. Some of them are tremendous churches. Some of them are messed up churches. For right now, what I want you to see is that our majestic Savior, the exalted Lord, is bigger than you ever imagined. 
and yet he still cares and ministers to his friend and his churches. Notice what he gives John to do. Verse 19, write down what you've seen. Instruction from verse 11, write down what you see and send it to the seven churches. Compare that to verse 20. Seven stars in my right hand. Those are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now scholars debate whether the seven stars represent guardian angels. The word angelos is used here. The, uh, might be guardian angels who care for the seven churches, or that word can be translated messenger. Perhaps the preachers of the churches. I like that idea. Being precious in the right hand of the Savior. Either way, these stars are held in the hand of favor the precious right hand of the Savior. And Jesus is walking among the candle stands. What would, what would that vision look like? Probably John sees the image of the Jewish menorah, the seven-lamp candle stand that stood in the Jerusalem temple in the holy place near the altar of incense and the table of shewbread. There are seven lampstands. Are you noticing seven's kind of an important number in Scripture? It stands for completeness. So these messages to the seven churches are applicable to all churches. But seven lampstands, each with seven lamps, and they represent the seven churches listed here in verse 11. And we'll see this again in chapters 2 and 3. These are the churches in the cities in nearby Asia Minor. We know this place today is western Turkey. These were real churches in real places with real struggles, real people, and real problems. And Jesus is walking among his churches, examining his churches. I want you to know that Jesus cares deeply about his churches. Somehow in our modern Christian theology, our attention has, our, our attention has gone to two ends of the spectrum. We talk so much in American individualized Christianity about Jesus' individual relationship with individual believers. And the other tendency is to talk about Jesus' care for the church universal. That mysterious collective of all believers everywhere in the world, across all periods of time, the church that is made up of people who ever since the day of Pentecost, in whatever country they live, in whatever congregation they worship, the church universal. So we think of ourselves as individuals who belong to a mysterious universal church and we miss Jesus' focus and concern and care for individual congregations. 
It's one of the key prime areas where American modern Christianity is out of balance from how Jesus sees his church. Individual congregations are so very important to him. How we serve God together, how we treat each other, how we handle disagreement in our midst, how we help each other overcome the evil one, how we keep the local body healthy and away from doctrinal error, and, and what do we do when the local congregation somehow gets distracted or sick or, or goes off the rails? Jesus cares about individual congregations deeply. It was the British Bible scholar George Lang who said, It is this majestic one who walks amidst the churches on earth, his flaming eyes searching into all hearts, perceiving all ways and all works, his reproving words as a sword, but his long robe telling of his powerful intercession for their help as a royal priest. How solemn to be perpetually under the piercing gaze. How perilous to dare that two-edged sword with which he reproves and chastens, and how encouraging that the humble may count unreservedly upon his illimitable resources in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Listen. Do you hear Jesus? I love you, Lakewood. I've seen your days of huge success. Lakewood, I've seen your seasons of decline. I still walk among you. I've felt your times of joy, and I've felt your moments of deep disappointment and confusion and shame. And yes, I, I still walk among you, and I'm inspecting you, examining you, and I so love you. I lay my hand on you, my right hand, my hand of blessing and favor. Don't, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I've known all about your struggles from way before your church even existed. I've decided to help you and bless you and encourage you. I'm the living one. I didn't go absent in the first century. I still hold the keys to death and Hades. I still save people and release captives and rescue lives and change communities. I've got work to do in you now. Now. I've got things to say to you these days. My love for you, Lakewood Church, is no less than the love I had for the church in Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira or Sardis or Philadelphia or Laodicea. I spoke to them to heal their wounds and restore their health. I'll speak to you to heal you and bring you back to strength, back to blessing and unity. Can you hear Jesus? 
saying, I love you, Lakewood. We'll deal with your flaws. We'll, we'll heal your brokenness. It may be humbling getting there. It may involve tears and confession and admitting your regrets. But I love you. I'll be tender with you. I'll be eager to heal and bless you. I do love you. Let me show you how much. Did, did you notice what the lampstands are made from? They're made of gold, the most precious of metals. And here's a little detail from the Old Testament that tells us a little bit about how precious the congregations are. The menorah in the tabernacle, the lampstand in the temple, had to be made out of one solid ingot of gold. Just imagine that. A huge bar of precious gold. And it was heated and molded and hammered and fashioned until it was perfect to the eye. And that solid gold menorah, a solid gold lampstand, is how Jesus sees Lakewood Church. Now here's the rest of the truth about gold. It's a soft metal. It's easily dented and damaged. And while each church is precious and, and valuable, across time, doing what Jesus wants done, projecting light, lighting up the environment, helping those in the dark, it can easily get damaged. Valuable but dented, treasured but scarred. And with the Lord of the church loving us, even in our marred, imperfect condition, he comes to us to touch us and change us and heal us. Now today, the conclusion of the message is the Lord's Supper. And it's here that the Lord of the church wants to meet us and rebuild us and change us and heal us. I don't know if you know this, but the text we almost always read at communion is from 1 Corinthians 10, the passage that gives us the most detail about how we should celebrate communion is in the middle of a letter to a church, not one of the seven churches that we'll dig into next week, but it's a letter to a church that was a mess. In fact, right before the words we usually read, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, you know how we read those every month. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes right before that. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than 
good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to so which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Have you ever seen that? Oh, my goodness. Getting drunk at communion. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Here's a church like some of the churches we're going to study that was a mess. What was going on? Well, in the church of Corinth, there were divisions, church members dividing up over who they follow. We follow Pastor Apollos, and we don't appreciate Pastor Peter. We follow Pastor Paul, but we don't appreciate Pastor Apollos. That was one issue that was there. They had a case of major sexual immorality in the church, and they, they couldn't agree how to handle it. Some were even proud of it. They had members dragging other members into court in lawsuits. They had disagreements about how to encourage the single adults among them, how to care for widowed members. They had disagreements about that. They had fights over how doctrine should be lived out in daily life. They had fights about whether women should lead in worship. They disagreed about how to worship and disagreed about whether spiritual gifts were to be practiced in public worship and which were more important. Do you get the picture? They're a mess. And they resented each other and criticized each other and accused each other and defamed each other. And the apostle tells them, when you receive communion with that kind of sin in your midst, when you receive communion with that kind of attitude toward each other, you destroy the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And you blaspheme against the body of Christ that is to be a unity. And God's judgment is among you. Verse 30, that is why some of you have gotten weak and some sick. And some have even died and gone to heaven. Because God's judgment is in your midst. When churches carry this kind of division, this kind of resentment, carrying these kinds of grudges, this kind of unresolved anger against that person on the other side of the assembly. Paul says it's not the Lord's Supper you're sharing because you're not discerning, you're not understanding God's design in the body of Christ. Verse 27, whoever eats 
the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Listen up here. We are headed into a time the next two months of seriously examining our own hearts and if any way we have contributed to the years of ineffectiveness of Lakewood Church. This is serious stuff to the Lord. He pulls his blessing away from churches that reflect poorly on his heart and are acting poorly in regard to the attitude God expects us to have toward one another and the graciousness God expects us to carry toward one another. We're headed into a time in the next few minutes where God asks us to examine ourselves, examine our attitudes, examine our relationships for bitterness, examine our lives for disobedience, examine how we treat each other and talk about each other. And if we find that there is something wrong there, and if we will not repent and confess it to the Lord and seek to change, then the Bible says, whatever you do, don't take communion. Because if you're holding on to that sin, you make a mockery of the cross. If you receive communion while holding on to the sin that put Jesus on the cross, Today, as we come to the Lord's table, I'm going to read the longer passage. I'm going to ask our communion leaders to come forward right now, and the worship team as well. And I want to read the longer text to you, and then we'll take a time to be quiet and examine our own hearts before we pass the elements. And oh, it is my prayer that you will be able today to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper, communion as we call it, with a clean heart. Now listen to me. It's not possible for us to live in perfection. We're not perfect. But it is possible for us to live in forgiveness. And this is all about forgiveness. First Corinthians eleven seventeen. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. 
for when you are eating. Some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further directions about other things. Now's the time to spend silently asking God to reveal anything in your life that needs cleansing, anything in your life that needs change. He loves you. He so wants to help you. It starts with our discovering our inadequacy. Let's pray.
Lord, in these moments, we ask you to cleanse us and change us. We are willing to make the changes you desire in us. We thank you for the truth of your word. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need that, Lord. We thank you for the blood of the cross in which we have forgiveness of sin. We praise you that you allowed your body to be hung on that tree, enduring the suffering our sins caused. And we would live our lives to your glory. We would live our lives with attitudes like you have toward others who are in the body of Christ. In this, Lord, we ask your forgiveness. We claim your promise. We trust that you will change us. And we pledge to cooperate. And God's people together said,